I can't believe you believe this. This is all lies. This is untrue. How could you, like, what, you believe Sharon on Facebook just because she shared this with you? How could you be so dumb? Well, hey there, friends. Ah, we're so glad that you stick with us. And when I say you, I mean you, because you're listening, and not everybody does. But we have a content-filled show today. We normally are interested in ideas that focus on spirituality and religion and communities of that realm, right? We're talking about churches and cults and, and, and folks that manipulate us through explicitly religious uh, avenues and forms. But today, we are looking at a kind of, well, an ideological cult. And this is really important, friends, because you know, if you're listening to us and you think, well, these guys are just kind of down on religion. Um, sometimes. It depends on how you define it. You know, I mean, that's what I study. That's what I find fascinating and intriguing. And I love studying it. And I love going and checking out temples and meeting with people that are in all sorts of varieties of, of belief and forms of religious experience. And I love the conversation. And I love seeking and finding the truth and goodness and beauty in the world and spirituality and healing and all of that. But religion understood as authoritarian mind control, well, that's a different thing. And people using that sensitive place of religion to, you know, have easy pickings at prey. That's something we care about. Well, now, when people in the 20th century thought that maybe religion was something to dump, especially after World War I, uh, World War I being just this calamity of calamities where you had, you know, dysentery and war and just the hopelessness of the weird situation where technology, technology we thought was going to heal our world and make everything better. And, you know, all the way back to Franklin, you know, Benjamin Franklin said, you know, one day, I wish I could live another hundred years because then I'd be able to see the overcoming of poverty and war and suffering and injustice. And that was a long time ago. But in the 20th century, as you got to that spot, they were hoping that they could, they could achieve, we, humanity, could achieve the overcoming of suffering. There was a lot of optimism at the end of the 19th century, but at the beginning of the 20th century, then we get a bunch of bad stuff. You get World War I, you get the Spanish flu, you get the influenza in 1914, you get, um, you get the Great Depression, you get, you get World War II and the Holocaust, and we end the, the war with a big old explosion that demonstrated that technology can be very helpful, but it also can be really dangerous. Well, friends, we never saw it coming, I don't think. What we thought was going to happen was robots were going to come, you know, insert, you know, probes into our eyeballs, but instead we get brain worms. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it. The brain worms of technology itself, not even with anybody pulling the strings sometimes, but technology itself moving us into ways of thinking that are dangerous for ourselves, dangerous for others. And then on top of that, on top of the ways in which computer, <laughs> computers, but you know, these algorithms point us into increased radicalization and division and bitterness and hatred. We also have people that are actively using technology specifically online technology, to control the world in a way that used to be done. We used to control people through bayonets and, and cannons, and now we can find ways to be controlling or we find ourselves controlled by folks who use disinformation intentionally to manipulate whole societies, to control people. This happens from foreign actors. We're going to be looking at that. And this also happens from people internally, in this case in America, who are going to use disinformation to divide and conquer, to, um, to get us to think in ways that are not really that healthy. And most importantly, to get us to believe lies. And the fact is, wherever you stand on the political or religious spectrum, I'm pretty sure you'd agree with us that there are a lot of lies out there. 
And it is very hard to understand how to sort it all out and get to the truth. It's also really hard to figure out how to talk to people who seem to be in kind of these mind cults that are now more political or ideological, or uh, perhaps it's, it's uh, you know, a neo-fascism, or perhaps it's um, a kind of a resurgent kind of racism, or white nationalism, or Christian nationalism, or eco-terrorism. I mean, who knows? But all of these things are on the on the menu here for us today. And our guest is a student of mine, Sean Nolan. And the reason I knew that Sean needed to be a part of this conversation is because I was advising him on this thing that we do here at Concordia University, Irvine, where I teach. Uh, and that is the presidential showcase. It allows me to get uh, a few students each year that want to do extra uh, extra special work, doing deep research and presenting it to the campus community and they win accolades and prizes. Uh, but Sean Nolan is a history and political thought major and he is minoring in law and politics. And beyond that, he's also the captain of Concordia's parliamentary debate team and he's a participant in uh, Concordia University's prestigious honors program. And so he is a sharp cookie, but most importantly, when I was advising him in his recent research, uh, at one point I made a, a statement and he said, no, that's simply not borne out by the facts. He opposed me with evidence and I thought, now that is a protect your noggin kind of guy. <laughs> and so I knew that he was the right guy for this conversation. His research is into disinformation on the internet and the way it affects us. He's going to help us discuss at the end ways in which we might be able to help people who we think might be stuck in these these kind of uh, little uh, loops, these little echo chambers on the internet and uh, to be there in a loving and caring way to help to help us all outfox manipulation in its many forms. Thanks for being here. This is going to this is going to be a high-paced uh, conversation, so strap your seat belts on and come along for the ride. Let's go. This is my wife, Stacy. We're so glad you joined us. How are you doing this evening, by the way? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. I just had some uh, some bread, this sweet bread that they sell at the local Asian market. And is that is that brain? Water. Is sweet bread brain, or is it uh, actual bread? It's it's a uh, it's a type of breading. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's made like traditional Western bread. So because I should tell the listeners, uh, we're now recording. I should tell the listeners that uh, this was Lent for us, and we totally failed. We've mentioned this in writing but not in 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 our words and i was supposed to go to a plant-based diet and do uh 20 minutes of, of sitting meditation zazen a day to see how this was going to work i did neither <laughs> I, I drank ipas and had charcuterie and i got gout and so the the great humiliation from from the catholic god even though i'm not catholic for defiling lent you know it's, the catholic god doesn't mind if you um uh, you know, if you defile Lent, if you're not Catholic, but if you're, you know, if you're trying to say you're going to do Lent and then you blow it, then that's game over. And so I got cursed. Mm -hmm. I was smitten in my foot with, with gout and, um, and it was painful. And I want you to understand, Sean, that of all the things that, that you want to avoid, that's one of them. That's yeah, one he's of them. having a hard time walking. He was really yeah. yeah. So Sean is the first student in a while that perked my uh, like little ears up when we were you know talking. I don't know. Stacy and I were we were working. This is so inappropriate. We were working on caulking our RV camper. Actually, Stacy was working. <laughs> she was doing the caulking. If you get an RV, oh, well, just basically resealing the roof. Anytime there's cracks and stuff, and I know, wish I would have known this and everything. You know, we want to make sure that the water doesn't get in and damage uh, the structure. Of course. Uh, but, but you got to stay on this. Well, while Stacy's doing this work, when, when Jeff tries it, <laughs> he, he, I guess he just kind of thinks, well, it's, it's white. It'll just go away. Right. Like, after I thought it was dries. like Elmer's glue. I thought I was like a five-year-old finger painting on my truck. And then I had to spend the ne next day scraping off the caulking while Stacy did the work. And then I had a meeting with you via zoom. So I just, you know, pulled aside and I'm trying to, you know, be professorly and be helpful, but you know, I'm a bum. And then all of a sudden, a young gentleman named Sean Nolan says, with, with all due respect, you're completely wrong according to the evidence. 
And that's what brings you here today. I've actually mentioned you on the show already, which is uh, this idea that no matter what kind of education you get, you really need to be able to see a young man or woman getting through a, a, an education where they are able to bring evidence and critical thinking and push back against the professors. That's delightful. But more importantly, what was the context? We were discussing disinformation and your, and your uh, project here with the uh, Concordia University Presidential Showcase. I was very impressed by it. But not just so impressed, but I realized that this is the thing that is that is terrifying us. I my when I was a young man, I um I would have this recurring dream that all my friends were drinking out of uh, hoses that had poison gas and dying, and and I just kept telling them, please please don't do this, <laughs> please don't do this, and all my worst nightmares came came true in the last few years, where I just feel like the whole world is suffering with a variety of brain viruses or brain worms. And, and the real word, I think, is disinformation. But let's turn it over to you, Sean. What, how would you characterize what's going on right now? Or what, what's like a key word that we would use to understand these brain worms that are, that are coming through social media and things? Well, my research specifically focused on disinformation in terms of propaganda, which means while disinformation in general, uh, there are just like the word terrorism, disinformation has many, many different definitions that not a whole lot of organizations can come to agreement with what's the actual correct term that should be an international industry standard. And part of the reason for that is every country has its own vested interest on ignoring certain aspects of disinformation. Right. So one country that engages in propaganda in one direction is going to want to exclude that from their definition of disinformation because they believe, at least when they're saying it out loud, what the truth is. So disinformation, uh, I would say, is any form of information that is presented in a biased context or is blatantly false information that is purposefully distributed for the purposes of influencing uh, people to believe either a certain story or take on a certain action. Now, typically, more actors of disinformation want you to act in a certain manner, but at the very least, they're trying to influence your ability to view a situation. Now you, thank you for that, by the way. It's very helpful. Get right to the business. You are the captain of Concordia's parliamentary debate team. Um, this, is, this is something that's always been really not just prestigious, but pretty powerful at Concordia, but you're just right along there with it. Does it does it occur to you or do you feel frustrated ever that what you were thinking you were training to do in terms of persuasion, argumentation, dialectic and all that in some ways has has no use in a world where we're dealing with with frog memes? I mean, I'm not saying no use, but I'm saying, you know, there's this part of you that would say what I want the the debate to look like or what I want public discourse to look like is this. And this is the classical way I've been trained in it. You're in the honors program. You're, you're, you're doing all this good work to train your mind to be analytical and critical thinking and to be able to be eloquent and persuasive. And it doesn't work. This is a side issue. This isn't about your research. This is about you. <laughs> this is about what you're up to. Um, have, does it bother you emotionally? <laughs> At first, it did when I entered into Concordia um, for my very first year. I was scared at the implications of learning about persuasion and then seeing that no matter how much truth you say it seems useless because people will just disbelieve it outright but then i kind of being a history major i always like to look back towards history where lots of people say oh this is a big issue now but it's also always been an issue where nice. people's rhetoric and sounding nice and presenting themselves in a very um, aesthetically appealing manner means that they will always appear more attractive than the actual soundness of their logic or arguments. A very easy example of this is when you look to presidential debates before the advent of television and presidential debates after the advent of television where when people were forced to listen to arguments, or at the very least, they were only carried away by the verbal rhetoric of a presidential candidate, the ratings between how people thought who won a presidential debate on the radio was much different than when they saw the faces of people on television and the actual physical beauty and attractiveness of a person played mm. into how they interpreted arguments. Yeah. So, so, so you just, you know, I mean, history is helping you realize that 
at least it's comforting to know that nothing's new under the sun. It's just new, new, new modalities, if we would say, uh, of, of disinformation. But in the recent years, the, the research that you were looking at was about something that's, you know, pretty, pretty well known now. I mean, it's all too well known. And that is, you know, people are having difficulty at, at Easter, having a nice ham dinner and, and talking to their aunts and uncles and cousins. It feels like we have, you know, no shared uh, or, or very little shared common ground in terms of some of the, the, you know, the mental landscape or the thought processes of how we're deciding all these things, but you're looking at very specifically um, uh, disinformation that came from foreign powers and influenced American uh, political life. Tell us about that. Just give us the the kind of the, the starting point for this conversation. Yeah, exactly. So disinformation, Mm -hmm. There are, in the American context, there you could split it down the middle. There's domestic actors of disinformation, and then there are international actors of disinformation. And the reason you want to divorce these two is the language gap and the tactics used by people that distribute disinformation is very different based on the location of the actor. So if we're going to speak to an international context, there are different countries that have different strategies for engaging disinformation. And a lot of people will say, oh, disinformation is only like shady news websites, or disinformation is someone that pays for ads that appear on the side of my Facebook bar. But the scary implication of disinformation is disinformation is could be any Twitter user you meet. Disinformation could be any comment on Reddit. It could be any person on Instagram that is using fake or stock photos to mask themselves as a person. So let's talk about some key actors and tactics that yeah. uh, engage in disinformation. Uh, the primary example, at least in the American context, is Russia. Russia loves to engage in propaganda and disinformation. And that's mostly due to the fact that they have a lot of experience already being the successor of the USSR and the KGB. And how a lot of former, uh, a lot of former Soviet spies that were experts at distributing propaganda just transitioned and went into Russia. Putin was an ex-KGB member himself and is, understands this completely. So Russia will set up fake news websites. They'll buy the ads. They'll create bot networks. They'll create cloud hosting services that host disinformation websites. Their own state-funded media, such as Russia Today, engages in distributing disinformation. They'll pay bots to go onto other social media websites to pretend to be normal users, and they'll do very insightful and damaging comments. The, The whole goal, at least according to FBI reports in 2018 and 2019 that were given to Congress, or that Russia's goal for disinformation is just to incite radicalization and violence and drive American people apart by presenting two completely different realities. And then when those two realities meet, it causes violence. I got to pause you there. So you're saying that at Easter, when people sit down and they realize they're living in two different realities with people at the same table, which is a very, I mean, this is a thing for us. It's a thing for a lot of our friends. You're saying that foreign agents were doing this very deliberately and on purpose. Exactly. Definitely. That is this, that is is this conjecture. Whole... This is what this, this is what the FBI received is, is the information. Yeah. They drew this information based on, okay, well, if Russia is distributing propaganda, we should be able to track some of it, whether because we go down the chain of shell companies and we figure out it's a Russian source, or we just directly follow the funding for websites, or we examine IP addresses and we go, what sort of messages is Russia distributing to individuals? How do we know that they're trying to drive people apart? And you just read the messages. Some of them are go to extremely far left extremist standards where they're making appeals to uh, anti-establishment rhetoric. They're talking about eco-extremism. They're talking about like the death of the planet or how everybody in Washington is out to get you and they're conspiring to like upend the DNC and overthrow elections. Or you, they're distributing far-right messages where they're still that same or anti-establishment rhetoric, but it's also in the context of far-right views. So uh, very far evangelicism where they're making appeals to like apocalyptic Christianity, where they're Revelation is coming soon, or they're making appeals to anti-science rhetoric, like vaccines are secretly going to be used by the government to control you, or the government is secretly controlled by the Jews. Um, 
Russia is distributing uh, information on both ends of the political spectrum to radicalize people so that they live apart from each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, and, and you're right, like, right, the, 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 the Russians, they really were the experts in this. And they're just, you know, this is, this is basic playbook stuff, but nobody really saw it coming with the, with the way that the, the social media works now. Is this something, you know, um, every generation is a little different. Like my youngest refused. He, I was shocked when he wouldn't get on Facebook. I was more shocked. I told my, my oldest son, you know, why are you dating some gal who doesn't have a Facebook profile? What's wrong with her? she got something to hide? Well, now I'm thinking, how did I, how did I get myself into this mix for you? What's your um, what's your relationship with social media? I mean, how how are do you engage in it? Do you have handles? I mean, what's your? Um, I b- before going into college, I had no social media accounts whatsoever. So no Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter, none of that. I do now have Facebook for professional context, which is connecting with people, especially within the collegiate debate community. Yeah, you need that. And then uh, I do frequently use Reddit, which I'm the key demographic for it. But I use it much less, uh, especially with my research into propaganda, where <laughs> I'm literally seeing the bots that I'm researching about, making comments and influencing uh, what sort of content is popular on the website. And I've been in contact with a recent um, expert from Canada on countering uh, terrorism. And he's given me some good resources to just go to these news sites and just read the news instead of consuming it through like a warped lens. Mm. So now when you didn't, you didn't use these things before, is that, what, what was the reason for you? I was mostly antisocial. So I didn't really have <laughs> people to be friends with online. Yeah, I had what, what's two friends. I had two friends in school, and I talked to them through my phone. So what and, else you need? <laughs> and then I watched YouTube, but I didn't really like have an account or post social media, so there's no need. Well, you know, you're lucky now because you're not getting you're not getting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Facebook just had this breach. Facebook had just a, a massive breach, but but really, you know, that people worry, we worry about giving our information out like that. But I mean, really, we're we're dealing with with life and death. In this, we're dealing with the shape of the shape of the nation, and uh, and it's in it's like right in front of us. Your your own research, you, we were reflecting earlier. It seemed almost like what you just figured this out last week. I mean, you've been working on this all semester, but it's so timely. Your research is so timely. It felt like like this is this is like responding to stuff that's happening in the news as we're as we're reading these papers that are coming out. What um, what do you think? Uh, about the Chinese involvement. I mean, so you're talking about the Russians. What about the Chinese? What do they want? China represents, in terms of disinformation, something that we're seeing lots of countries do, but China is just the best example of this because they're the largest. They have a very developed military. They have a lot of internet infrastructure. And so they're capable of capitalizing it to a much greater degree than many other countries. And by other countries, I'm looking to Iran, India, Israel, those are the other major actors, which is that China engages in a digitally defensive disinformation game. That's an Mm. alliteration, (laughs) which is they will post comments or they engage in disinformation that casts doubt onto Western institutions, such as universities or news media, by calling them imperialists, by calling them biased, not knowing or understanding the Chinese language, and thus everything they report on China must be false and bad. Additionally, China engages in not just casting doubt, they also are trying to deflect away from negative attention on China. So every time a news article comes up that's critical of China, you'll see comments directly underneath that saying, oh, China's not that bad, but what about America? But what about England? But what about Germany? It's all about deflection and casting attention away from casting China in a negative light at least um, in terms of America, in terms of internal domestic disinformation policy, China's a whole other That's ball. A whole, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense, right? Because basically China, China's got a different game they're playing. You know, it's just a different game. And, and partly it's, I think, you know, they still want, you know, keep the NBA happy, keep the, you know, it's, there's an economic aspect of it. And if you can keep in very, very, very real uh, economic terms, if, 
uh, if they don't manage that PR piece of it, if the Uyghur thing gets uh, gets to be such a stain on them that they can't have the Olympics, there's there's a financial element to it. So I think th- there's a, a slight uh, difference there. I think you've got that down. It was remind. I was reminded of when we um, were visiting China, and on the way out, you kind of fill out this survey of how was your experience. And of course, I mean, you're not going to lie, but you're also going to say everything was fantastic, right? You know, you don't want you know positive, uh, positive experience, (laughs) you know, so it all kind of connects because that's what they very much do care about. And they're monitoring it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we're just like sloppy now these days in in the United States or maybe just, you know, less nefarious, but, but ultimately, you know, this did, this did have an effect in the last couple of years. uh, I know I'm asking a lot about your feelings. It's not normal, but this is a podcast. This isn't class. I'm not asking you about your feelings, but do you, in all of this, as you've done the research, do you have more hope or despair than when you began in terms of just the general public dialogue about all these things? Um, I guess when you dive into the depths of the ocean, there's no light that you can see from the bottom. And for me, it's kind of more hopeless in that I see a lot of people who fall down a rabbit hole. They're never really going to climb out of. But I do think that in the future that we're getting better at understanding um, how to recognize this information. And at the very least, we know that we're inputting strategies to counteract it, uh, especially in like the past year. Mm. And one of those was one that my my colleague Dave Schultz and I, Dave Schultz being in um, in communication, we were kind of going to that just, you know, standard a well-meaning academic uh, uh, idea that that the way that you deal with toxic ideas, and, and I'm specifically constantly in, in, I think it's bots that I'm fighting, um, but with with white nationalist bots, I, I think some of them are actual pastors, to be honest, in um, in uh, disguise. I mean, they, they're they're anonymous. Uh, they're hassling me. There is there is this there is this phenomenon of uh, especially these. I don't know if it's only radicalized, if that's the word, but certainly alt-right folks who know pretty well how to hassle me if I get out of line. So if I step out of line on on some uh, on some issue related to uh, you know abusive women, um, police force against uh, African Americans or something, I'll have people in my my networks that will kind of swarm on me like in the old uh, you know. Um, uh, like the zombie movies where they'll kind of identify you as a non-zombie and they all come after you. To what extent is that me dealing with an actual cabal of anonymous, angry white nationalist pastors? And to what extent is that 25% pastors and 75% Russian bots? I, I wouldn't have any, no, any way of knowing, but do you have a guess? Uh, I wouldn't be able to give you a guess based on the research I did. I mean, you could it could be anywhere from ten to thirty percent, but that's just a spitball number out of nowhere. So it's not it's not all of them. No, like definitely most, not. What, is, what what can a bot do? Like what what does if I'm if I'm engaging with a bot, how do, how would I know? Do you have any? I mean, I know mm-hmm. this is not exactly the research you were doing, but I'm curious. I mean, it it kind of passes the Turing test for a for an angry you know racist a hole. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, the simplest bots you just give them like a set number of phrases that they'll say you tell the bot hey if you detect this keyword in a message post this reply if you detect Mm. this keyword in a message post this reply and the they're pre-written by a human it's just when it chooses to do it and its responses are automated i see I have another question. Um, you had talked about some of the international um, influence of, you know, for misinformation. What about the domestic for U.S.? Mm-hmm. So the difference in location is like China, they're just trying to make themselves look good. Russia, they're trying to destroy America. But what about a person inside of the U.S.? A person inside of the U.S. is trying to garner some form of political support or action for disinformation in the context of domestic terrorism or domestic extremist groups, they're trying to gain recruitment. They're trying to gain funding. They're trying to become more politically popular to pressure people inside of Congress to either speak certain phrases or vote certain ways on bills. 
those are those are the main ways. Instead of destruction, instead of looking good internationally, it's all about making a group bigger and being able to take action as a group. Could you ever see yourself saying, what we need to do is learn the rhetoric of this new landscape? And instead of just bemoaning that this is the way we do speech and debate, now speech and debate is taking on a whole a whole new uh, idiom. Do you engage it? Is there any is there any ethical way that you would see yourself engaging in some of these manipulative tactics for the for the good? I would I would intellectually, morally not advocate for doing so. But if you're saying, would it be effective to use their own tactics against them? The answer is, it could be. But the demographic that falls for disinformation in the first place might not fall for using the same tactics, but speaking the truth instead. Mm. It wouldn't be as it like so. So, for instance, what the, the, the kinds of things that are attractive, of course, we've seen are, are conspiracy theories. You know, Pizzagate is far more interesting than did you know that 45 percent of, you know, methamphetamine users have a problem with their, you know, uh, vitamin D? Well, well, yeah, fear, be, fear based stuff right? Yeah. that you're going to throw at people. I don't know if that's a question. I guess the like, <laughs> this is it's more to say um, these, you know, because because you deal with this all the time in 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 just the, the in, in the world of debate, speech and debate. Right. Like, do you do speech and debate? Um, I do parliamentary, uh, national parliamentary debate, uh, and I also do Lincoln-Douglas debates. So in that style, uh, please forgive my ignorance on it. I think it's all very cool, but like chess, I don't know what's, what's going on sometimes. Uh, in, some, uh, in some like forensics teams in high school, you get, you, know, you get a proposition, and you don't know if you're going to you know, argue in favor of it or not. And so there's this idea that, that rhetoric, you know, rhetoric is a, is a very... Uh, dark art you know because it, there's no ethics to it you know you could just almost like a like well you know you're pre-law basically right like you like to, all the jokes about lawyers really are jokes about rhetoric in some ways about people using the power of persuasion for um for what you know like in a mercenary way right um and so clearly there are things that you would that you would learn i mean well so first of all the question is do you do that in the parliamentary debate setting where you 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 have a proposition and it's not you don't know what it's going to be mm, typically no you know immediately whether you're arguing in the affirmative or in opposition to a topic whenever it's presented all right so so you know obviously there's there's the question of the offensive side of things we'll leave that we'll, we'll call that the dark arts and we'll maybe not touch that let's make that you know forbidden but there is something that i i thought was really really the, the crux of why I thought it was so powerful what you had presented in your research, which was, and I, I didn't finish it earlier, when I'm talking with my colleague in calm, Dave Schultz, we, we were saying, you know, everything that we believed, everything from Voltaire and just from the American, you know, First Amendment and, and, and how deep that is in who we are, um, hopefully as Americans, right, this idea that we're going to let these silly ideas air out and then they're going to just die on their own because they won't they won't be able to have any life if they're not tied to truth, goodness and beauty or something. And so go ahead and let all these really nasty ideas out there. And generally that kind of worked, uh, you know, to let people with hoods going to make fools of themselves and, and, and get public shame or something. But you said to me that deplatforming these uh, these bad actors was kind of the answer. I mean, I think that's what you were saying to me. So tell me more about that. Maybe, maybe the ethics of it too. I'm just curious about your opinion on that. But first, the eth efficacy. Mm -hmm. So you were saying that it's, it, it's, it actually works better to deplatform. Let's like just forget about whether or not it's right or not, right? You got some neo-Nazis deplatforming. Talk to me about how, how that works and why, sure. it, why it's effective. Yeah, so the whole goal of disinformation is to get as big of an audience as possible, to get as, as many eyes to see it as possible. Even if 90% of a million people say, oh, this is immediately dumb, and then log off immediately, that 10% that stays and that 1% that believes it is still going to be a massive audience. 
points. So when you're looking at a, it's playing a numbers game. It's kind of like how you talk to people who are young people who date online nowadays, which is it's all about getting as much attention as possible and hoping some number of the people that are exposed to the information remain. If you want a, if you want a very ancient example of this, quote unquote, you can look to the KGB. The KGB back during the Cold War, whenever they knew news critical of the government or a bad event inside of the USSR was about to be distributed through the newspapers, they would present counter information before the news got out, or they would immediately present a counter narrative as soon as news came out. And what that meant was a certain percentage of the population was automatically going to go, oh, there's no consensus here, so I'm just not going to think about it. Mm. Or, oh, I'm going to immediately believe the counter narrative over the regular narrative, either because it fits with my worldview better, it seems more intuitive, or I believe the source more. And so why deep platforming? The big, the big, the big concern is if you drive them to the dark corners of the internet, we, we won't know what they're talking about. They'll all be meeting in secret. Right. And, and the other thing is, oh, their ideas are so dumb and stupid. Like Nazism, you lost a war and your ideas are all incoherent. We can just debate you out of existence. That's not true. People don't go and seek out the other side that debates against your bad ideology. People don't go looking for online internet blood sports debates, though they do exist. People don't people don't look to disprove or check their own information. So preventing the exposure in the first place is one of the most effective ways to deplatform. If you want to look at an example, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, a very far-right commentator that was banned off of Twitter and was banned out and was even kicked out of the Breitbart organization. And as a result of that, he has like a hundredth of his funding and following as a result of just being deplatformed. Yeah. It does feel it does feel like a little bit of the fever has been relieved by this. And, and you're right, though. I mean, then my fear then becomes what, you know, what, what behemoth is underneath, you know, uh, the, the, the surface of things that's going to come out and, and terrify us in even a worse way. Or, of course, I think it's a real question. Who gets to make the decisions on who gets deplatformed? You know, I mean, that's that's. I'm, I'm totally with you on this idea that, that that's what works. Now the question is, is there any way that we could, as a society, say this is fair game? I mean, this is fair game, and then this is, uh, this is poison for grandma, right? Like, mm -hmm. so let's not feed poison to grandma. Do you have – has any of your research or even your own just kind of meandering thoughts about this kind of come up with a way you would do it if you were in charge? Mm -hmm. I had to wrestle with this a lot, especially being an American. I have a huge pride in the First Amendment and being able to engage in free speech. And even looking to other countries that have more limiting factors on freedom of speech that I'm hesitant of just because I don't like the idea of the government getting involved. Right. But there is a solution that could be effective. It's just there's either not enough resources or incentive to do so. And this moves on to a whole other issue, which is big tech which is that lots of social media companies have terms of service or TOS that is broken already when people engage in certain forms of disinformation. So YouTube, Twitter, uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all these organizations will have terms of service. They're like, you can't spout hateful rhetoric. You can't like outright start saying racial slurs. Uh, YouTube recently said, you can't do conspiracy theories about the coronavirus, as in denying the efficacy of the vaccine, as in denying how deadly it is, as in saying it was created secretly inside of a Chinese lab. And there's a, there's a big concern that big tech is going to become too powerful, more powerful than the government, and that you're just trading one master for another. I would, in turn, say you need a very strong case as to why social media companies would start banning people for no reason because they ban people because it's unprofitable to have racist people or to have extremist people on the website. The reason that they can't or don't is just... They don't have enough eyes in the sky. There is so much information that comes into a social media website. They don't know who is breaking their terms of service unless someone points it out to them. That's why every mm. social media website has a report function. They right. can't use bots. They can't use deep learning. And they certainly can't hire enough people to examine all the information and figure out who's the extremist that needs to get banned. That's mm. already breaking their terms of service. But once they're pointed out, then they can. 
Now there's a second aspect, which I don't want to like eat up all your podcast time, which is that there's not an incentive. Twitter had this big issue, and this ties into a larger conversation about algorithms we can go into, which is that in order to be able to easily mass ban groups of, uh, I'm going to use the far right for the example here, in order to be easily ban far right groups, um, what they'll do is they'll figure out which uh, Twitter users communicate with each other very often, which Twitter users tend to share the same information from the same far-right websites, such as neo-Nazi publications like the Daily Stormer. And just based on the fact that they all engage in this association very frequently, we can assume they're far-right without having to hire a guy to look through each account and determine if they are. But then they figured out that by using AI to like just categorize all these people as neo-Nazis, they were accidentally pulling in a lot of Republicans with them, including Republican um, politicians. And so the fear is, is you can't, um, you can't mass ban very easily without, uh, without pressure to do so. And once the January 6th capital rights occurred, then there was lots of public pressure that forced them to start banning a lot of far-right users because now there is the social will and now it's profitable to actually ban these groups. I don't want to go so far with this, but it almost feels like there's another uh, good Western libertarian American concept of like an invisible hand of the economy running this thing. That That is not something I expected to see coming down the pike, but that, that is interesting, right? Because it's not exactly an ideology behind that. It's like you said, the, the kind of general tolerance for this, of the will of the people, um, which I think is something that happened like right after we were saying on the show uh, a couple of weeks back, right after January 6th, uh, we spent a lot of our time hiding from COVID in a truck camper in our free camping in Huntington Beach, but we get to see the people coming and going. And right after January 6th, a lot of people's uncles and dads didn't bring their flags down to the beach. It was like everything was kind of tolerable. And then it just kind of became socially uncomfortable or, or you know, like, hey, don't do that. That's what, though, if I may say, like, that's what we we hope in the kind of 18th century American context is supposed to happen, that there's a social pressure, not now online, but when grandpa comes down to the beach with his, with his bike, with his bike. And I'm saying this in a very specific way because it's very specifically something we saw, which is a, a local pressure to tone down the rhetoric and the, and the symbolic displays after January 6th that had a very quick effect, which may have been affected also by the fact that people aren't rallying to the peer, for instance, because they're deplatformed. I mean, that that's also possible, I, you know, but go to the algorithms. Tell us more about what you found with this. You know, how, what's the, what's the, the math of this as it were? Uh, well, whew. this is what made not me the actual math. I'm <laughs> don't give me the actual math. I won't follow you. <laughs> uh, this is what made me want to consult you personally when I was doing this research paper, which is cool. it, it kind of ties into the idea of cults and yeah. narratives around cults. Right. And I'm going to pull in a term that wasn't in my research paper, but which is very, very relevant. Um, big tent conspiracy theories. Big Ten conspiracy theories are an idea that there is a conspiracy theory that is so malleable and there is no like centralized authority figure that it begins absorb absorbing and adopting many other different conspiracy theories into one big tent, which means that there is now a cohesive shared identity that people will rally around. The most recent phenomena being QAnon. Right. But how does this tie into like disinformation and domestic terrorism? Well, extremist groups also can be very malleable if there is no centralized figure or if the leading figure doesn't really have a coherent ideology to adhere to. And so what that means is that when content algorithms online are trying to recommend you information, they'll recommend you thing, videos to watch or news websites to read that other people who have viewed the same news website you did or the video you just watched did then moved on to. And what this means is that you're creating a network of individuals who 
have a distrust of traditional news sources. They turn towards alternative media. You have uh, you create a network of people who have a distrust of the establishment, so political elite, no matter the political party. You have a group of people that are already a little disconnected from reality and questioning every form of truth. And what a content algorithm does is it goes, well, we want you to stay in our website longer because we want you to enjoy our content, but also it makes us money because you're seeing ads. So if you like watching this video by this uh, avowed neo-Nazi talking about how it's a little weird that all the banks are controlled by a certain group of people, you might also like this, uh, you also might like watching this flat earth conspiracy. And what this means is that algorithms start recommending to people very disconnected extremist ideologies in effort to keep them on the platform because they're more predisposed to like that extremist ideology to begin with. And this creates, now instead of having a big tent conspiracy, we have what's kind of big tent ideology or in terms of what I wrote for, about for my paper, which was the alt-right, where many different extremist groups now begin forming a coherent identity because algorithms are driving them together. And people who benefit from these algorithms, the content creators that make these news websites, that post these videos, they want to be a part of a bigger tent because it gets them more views, because it gets more people invested in whatever niche they're talking about. And so either they mm -hmm. encourage the algorithm to keep them recommending to each other, or they take advantage of the algorithm accidentally without knowing there's this huge audience crossover. This is the thing. This is the thing that we kind of, Stacy and I, we were kind of starting with this, Stacy. We, we use the language of Molech. Somebody else came out with a, with a, a book, uh, McCarraher on um, Mammon. But the, the idea is these deities, these kind of, um, these, these chaos dragons, these, these demonic gods from the ancient Near East, really help as archetypes of of we, we we've kind of thought about it as like money power and glory so if mammon is is money and uh, molech is kind of the this power uh, that that they don't need to be actual deities or entities that have in, in like an independent consciousness the way we would think of it they're already alive these deities really exist in the form of this kind of super organism or a super organism of, of in digital you know, existence that is therefore protecting itself and kind of creating a life of its own. The, the thing that first occurred as we were starting our research on a lot of this is the way that money affects uh, Christian universities and schools, apart from anybody actually controlling things. And the example that we were using was, um, or that we'd been discussing was that K through 12 Christian, Christian schools tend to become more and more conservative, even if they're an Episcopal school that is run by a more liberal uh, or, you know, kind of largely mainstream, um, ethically, socially uh, con congregation, but the people that want to send their kids to the school might be trying to send them there so they don't have to hear about uh, transgenderism and, and, and Darwin and, and all this, or the environment, right? So there's things that they're trying to protect them from. Money makes that erstwhile progressive school more conservative attends to that on the k-12 meanwhile at the university level church-related schools have a tendency to become more progressive over time because of people bringing their money and they want to play volleyball and they're not so sure about this you know six thousand year old earth so here's a question that's really too close to home for me to what extent are these algorithms these these electronic superorganisms using evangelicals and using maybe some would say i might even think it a kind of gullibility uh, or a kind of ability to actively distance themselves from data in 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 a variety of ways and then politicizing that in other words i grew up stacy grew up in a world where we didn't always trust science Right. So so like we're th this is our thesis. This is why we do this podcast in some ways. Some people would say, well, why are you talking about political mind mind worms? Get back to your, you know, culty type stuff, because because I think that, that this is the great this is the great disappointment for our age. There's this other thing called the great disappointment when Jesus didn't come back. Somebody predicted it. Uh, Millerites. It's another topic for another day. But people 
the, the thing that, that's appropriate to that conversation is that people would see that Jesus didn't come back and then they would just double down on their ideology. They, they, they'd find a way to, to make it work and, and they'd reintegrate it. And that kind of demographic, if you, you're using those terms, seems, at least as an, like an observer here, if you were stepping back, it seems that these things, flat earth, um, denial, of, um, uh, denial of the Holocaust, um, uh, denial of climate change, did I mention that one? Um, you know, uh, just a, a variety of things that then can start to bleed into young earth and, and so forth. I'm kind of almost asking for a, uh, a, not a vindication, but an absolution for evangelicalism in the sense that maybe it's not so much that evangelicalism itself produced this, but rather these demons had a hostile takeover of the movement because they knew that, that there was already a distrust of science. That's my hypothesis. Tell me what you think. <laughs> it's interesting. The role that evangelicism plays into uh, uh, disinformation is, uh, at least in context to my research, which for listeners is I specifically examined in the context of domestic terrorism in all ends of the spectrum, but particularly with respect to the far right. And what is found is that evangelicism didn't really play a key factor in creating a unified identity in far-right domestic terrorism. Mm. It had more to do with American exceptionalism or white supremacism or male exceptionalism, so like misogyny of different right. respects. It doesn't seem like Christian evangelicism played a respect into that aspect. Mm. But in terms of disinformation in general, even Christianity can be ignoring of disinformation or it can counter disinformation but in the current context it's much more amicable to it and mm. what do i mean by that well christian scholarship and me attending a lutheran university i have a huge respect for christian scholarship we're examining the scholarship behind biblical translations or understanding all the intellectual debate about how to play out doctrine and faith. Once you understand from an educational perspective how your faith functions and why you believe what you believe, that helps you counter disinformation. Mm. But not a whole lot of Christians, and I would never make a demand on a Christian that they need to attend a four-year university <laughs> in order to become a Christian. But, but you're welcome to come out, hang out. We'll give you an education one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, but a, but a lot of Christians just don't get exposure to education, uh, at right. least in a Christian context. And what that means is that a lot of people have a um, a tendency to use faith as an excuse for thinking, which means that blind faith and a distrust in a sinful world can cause you to distrust what are seen as sinful institutions and uh, use faith as a justification for using your intuition rather than your critical thinking. So mm. if I see a form of disinformation that uses evangelical words like, oh, God is blessing this. You need to not believe this institution because they're satanic. Yeah. Those, those keywords that are being used to trigger your faith-based brain are trying to say, oh, my intuition tells me that I feel this is correct. Or my, my faith tells me that we live in a sinful, fallen, infallible world. And thus the scientific organization might be working for Satan and telling us lies and getting us to not believe in Jesus. And that's why um, that's why big tent conspiracy uh, plays so much into this, yeah. which is that evangelicism can get co-opted by saying, hey, your already inherent distrust of worldly organizations makes you more susceptible to hearing disinformation. But it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. That's right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense because uh, as I've experienced it, sometimes the hardest thing for a lot of Christian kids is going to a Christian college uh, because when you go to a state school and you hear about evolution or climate change or Marxism or something, you go, well, of course, that's what they're saying because they're all going to hell and <laughs> these people are godless. I'm just trying to get my piece of paper and move on. You can then, you just bypass it, right? So it's like, I don't, I don't deal with that. But the kids who grew up and then go to a Christian university where they're forced to wrestle with 
just the evidence for God or not, or, uh, you know, these questions about science and religion, things that are built into most liberal arts Christian schools, you know, there are ways that it goes wrong. We've seen it go wrong. We've spent a lot of time talking about that on the show, but there are ways that it goes right because it's at, at that point where you actually have to ask the kids, I'm sorry to say kids, but the, you know, these young adults are going to come into the, to the undergraduate program, maybe not expecting that that's what the game was. They thought maybe I'm just going to take notes. Now it's, you're not taking notes. You, you've got to wrestle with it, which is why the speech and debate, parliamentary debate, persuasion kids um, are always so great to have in class because th that's that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? So you're always trained to do that, and it's not seen as offensive. You're not like pissing off your pastor who's telling you something and you're saying you're saying no. But we, uh, you know, I don't know, Stacy. Like we having grown up in it and and i think this is what stacy and i were, were, were experiencing in the last little while we believed it <laughs> right yeah and absolutely um well you have to you know when you when you come across something that you know and you're in the bible or whatever and you're kind of hmm like this doesn't sound right or this is interesting or is god really like this you know um you really kind of have to come to terms with you know what kind of god is in the old testament you know if you're actually reading and believing and thinking about this and then you know you have to kind of really critically think is this a god that i want to worship that, and that's what your you class know? is or your bible study is right i guess what we're saying is what we've noticed because we've been in so many christian universities over the years um i mean a few but like that's what we've lived in. It seems that like the business professors are more likely to be conservative Christians and the Bible profs are like questioning their, their Orthodox faith because the Bible profs have to read the Bible and they have to wrestle with it. Whereas, you know, like you've got your five favorite Bible verses on your, on your wall and you, you go about looking at your spreadsheets, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, you don't, you don't have to wrestle with it as much. So I, I kind of like what you're saying that there is, there is a value. Uh, there is a value to that space that is still engaging these spiritual ideas. And this is why I think that one it's never going to pass really, but to me, one of the best ways that we could solve a lot of the world's ills is to require like a semester of Bible for every public school kid, not so that you can indoctrinate them, but just so that everybody knows there are various ways of reading this book. And there's a lot that goes into understanding the context of it that most people, most people don't, you know, have time for, or don't, don't realize that a lot of American evangelicals, in some ways, started to shift their mythology or their focus of mythology away from the kind of technical, say, dispensationalist end times rapture conversation. I don't hear that anymore. I, I ask students that grew up in evangelical America about the rapture and the and the the tribulation, things that would have been life and death issues. People staying after class forty five minutes in two thousand three. Nobody even knows what I'm talking about anymore because what church for them in their last five years, I mean, these are people, if you grew up from 16 to 18, then you come to my class and church was basically the news. Like it was like a, it was like a new cable news network with a, with a, with a band, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not making fun of this just to be, you know, silly. My, my, uh, my oldest son came with me to Ted Haggard's church in, in uh, Colorado Springs in 2006, just a little guy. And we'd only been to, uh, to like high liturgical Lutheran services, you know, boring 45 minute to an hour, but beautifully, you know, we, we loved it. And we, then we went to this big mega church and I said, so what do you think? You've never been to a church like this. And my son was maybe nine or something at the time. I was very young. And he said, yeah, that was weird. It was like a rock and roll concert and CNN and a little drop of Jesus in the mix. And, and I thought that was pretty damning, <laughs> but it was what he experienced. But, but what I'm saying is the theology itself, the theology itself, the, the kind of the, the, the myths, the, the, the great stories have seemed to me to move away from the Hebrew Bible and from the New Testament and move towards these issues that kind of use the language, as you've said, of say Antichrist, but put it into very... I don't know another way to say it, secular terms. I'm yakking at you, but I'm just wondering, in all that you've been looking at, did you did you go into any rabbit holes that were explicitly Christian? There are two. The the first one being uh, the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, are they still it, around? 
Yep, definitely. Okay, I don't want to Google it, but all right. <laughs> uh, they get less attention, uh, yeah. probably because it's old hat at this yeah, point. So right. the news doesn't care about reporting on them. Right. They're still around. And that rabbit hole is more just a whole host of disappointments, which is that they're using uh, they're using very literal interpretations and very much an Old Testament based mindset in order to justify like being hateful towards people. Um, and that's just more depressing because it's ignoring certain sections of biblical scholarship and then upholding other sections of biblical scholarship to just go justify being violent or aggressive or hateful for towards people. And, but that's not as much disinformation. The disinformation that was really interesting to me was the anti-vaccine movement. Um, if you, or it, I guess the, especially with the COVID vaccine is the best example, which is that the anti-vaccine movement uh, it has a very, very Christian bend because it, uh, ideas of body autonomy and like, uh, especially like, more, uh, I believe it's Mormons uh, have this whole thing about, a uh, Jehovah's Witness have this whole thing about caring about blood transfusions right. or or the mark of the beast. And this is the this is the real interesting rabbit. Yeah, I saw a lot of that, the mark of the beast, but I didn't drill down to it. So tell us. Which is which is that the the, the kind of disinformation that goes about is that uh, the government uh, either mandating or encouraging vaccines is being used to implant microchips, which will be the mark of the beast at the end times that is going to I guess, like, condemn you to hell for getting the vaccine. So you shouldn't because that's a bad idea at that point. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to get condemned to hell. You don't no, want thank you. You don't want your children to get condemned to hell. Right, right. So that that was like the most interesting form of Christian disinformation, mm. where the anti-vaccine movement uses Christian apocalyptic language to justify uh, not taking a vaccine by saying it's ungodly. Uh, your body is a temple. You shouldn't be forced to put this in your body. Children mm. are the most precious. Uh, children are the most precious under God because they're some of God's best servants. Which means by killing them by putting inert mercury inside them, that's going to kill them. You don't want to condemn them at the rapture because it's using the mark of the beast, the prick of the vaccine in the small scar. That's the mark of the beast. Don't take it. Mm. That used to. I don't know. You're, you're too. Um too young for this but this was originally the mark of the beast was the barcodes you know so everybody's like oh no i'm gonna get a barcode we're fine the barcodes turned out to not be the <laughs> mark of the beast unless you got it on your neck um to to kind of bring things uh you know to to a, to a close what though could we do about this i mean what what possible ways to to kind of heal the situation or at least mitigate the harm uh be, besides deplatforming that's a you know it's but, but some other people get to do as CEOs or whatever, but for just citizens mm -hmm. and maybe even, I don't know if, if you have an answer to this, we've been always having the trouble with it, but like our own family members or, or friends. Yeah. Uh, it's the most depressing one to talk about too. Yeah. <laughs> which is if you encounter a person that is experiencing some form of disinformation, what you should not do is cut them out of your life even though for your own mental health, you might consider it. And in, I'm not going to say in all situations, you shouldn't. If the person you're encountering is being aggressive or abusive because of disinformation, I would encourage isolation just to keep yourself safe. But cutting someone out is not the solution, like isolating them. That drives them further into disinformation when they have no other form of social attachment and the only outlet of social interaction they get is social media. The other thing I would not recommend is being confrontational and coming up and being really aggressive to someone and going, I can't believe you believe this. This is all lies. This is untrue. How could you like what you believe Sharon on Facebook just because she shared this with you? How could you be so dumb? No, on a personal <laughs> citizen to citizen level, you could use you a need to make sure that you're always a comforting and welcoming outlet or environment. Now, if that requires setting up some boundaries, like, hey, while you're in my household, we don't talk about politics, <laughs> then that can be perfectly fine. But a, another way, which is if you want to like try and counter message, that's the FBI term for it. If you want to go after this information on a one-to-one -one conversational level, you need to make it very personal. You need to make it very anecdotal. And I, being an academic, I don't like using this term. You need to be very anecdotal. Mm -hmm. You need to 
you need to be a lot about kindness and casting doubt, mm. which is that alternative media and disinformation is attractive because it's exciting. There's mm. a conspiracy about the government. I, the reason the world is suffering and nobody's solving it is nobody knows it yet. But I figured it out. I have the solution. And we just need to spread the message. Alternative media is exciting because, oh, those news channel organizations, they're too prim. They're too proper. They're too much in the government. But alternative media, this YouTube channel I found, they're the little guy. They're fighting against the big man. Yeah. What you need to do as a private citizen is you need to go – does this really jive with your own personal experience? But what about this family member that I know that runs directly counter to what you're being told? What about, uh, does this really like fit with your worldview? You need to be very calm, concise. And uh, the reason I say anecdotal is because people who are prone to disinformation are prone to alternative media. And alternative media is alternative because they don't have the facts. They don't have the data. They're never, they're not actually telling you the truth. They're telling you an exciting story. So when you're trying to get someone out of the rabbit hole of this information, you need to say this story, it's A, not exciting because it's probably harming a person you know. Like if someone starts to believe that black Americans are inherently violent, you need to say this, this is very harmful towards like people you already know in your communities. You also need to be anecdotal because you need to tell them a better story. They have a story in their head that they're interpreting everything they see through. And you need to give them a different story to make them realize that what they're being told is wrong. And that actually the facts and the truth are what, jibes with the world and it is like more coherent and creates a better life for an individual that is spot on that's not just that's not just for this but this is for cults in general you've got you've got it right there so on behalf of sean the mighty mighty sean nolan <laughs> doing a great great bit of uh, undergraduate research this year we're almost to the to the home stretch and uh my dear lady stacy peace upon peace friends yes peace upon peace thank you have a good day Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.